Here goes. I sped. I followed too closely. I ran a stop sign. I almost hit a Chevy. I sped some more. I failed to yield at a crosswalk. I changed lanes in the intersection. I changed lanes without signaling while running a red light and speeding. Didn't do it. Lawyer fucked me. You're the greatest lawyer in the world. Ooh, how can we ever thank you? I've been telling you your whole life. Don't talk on the fucking phone, right? Oh, no, I can't answer any more questions until I have a parent of lawyer present. You ain't talking to this guy. I want a lawyer. Is there a lawyer in the house? Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Right to Counsel podcast. This is your host, criminal defense attorney Kirk Anderson. I say it's Friday, but every day pretty much feels the same, so I could say happy any day and it would have the same effect. I can only talk about the coronavirus so much, so I thought this episode would be a good time to chat with my friend Melvin Welch. Mel is a funny and entertaining attorney who I think can bring an interesting perspective to the podcast since he has a lot of experience litigating criminal matters while representing the state and also representing individuals. But first, a quick rundown of some of the events that happened this past week. Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin decided to pick a Twitter war with Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose. I do not know how Secretary Mnuchin has time to get into these battles or what good he thinks is going to come out of it, but he decided to go there anyways. While there was some good news that 42 states have begun to reopen this week, the U.S. jobs report was released this morning and the unemployment rate has hit its highest mark since the Great Depression. President Trump's chauffeur and one of Vice President Pence's staffers have reportedly tested positive for the coronavirus. The Department of Justice yesterday decided to dismiss all charges against Michael Flynn, one of the key figures in the Russia investigation. As you may recall, Mr. Flynn was charged with lying to the FBI. He pled guilty and agreed to cooperate with Robert Mueller's investigation. Assuming the DOJ's motion to dismiss is granted, the plea would be vacated and the conviction would be rescinded. I've been an attorney for over 15 years, and I do not believe I have ever seen a prosecutor dismiss a case after a defendant had pled guilty. This was certainly unexpected, and I have a feeling that we will hear a lot more about this case in the very near future. 2020 has been a crazy year so far, and it is only the first week of May. On a positive note, ESPN began broadcasting Korean baseball games, and the 2020 NFL season was released yesterday. Assuming, of course, it begins on time. We still don't know if fans will be in attendance for those games or not, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. I just don't know how long that tunnel is going to be. All right, and now we welcome to the podcast uh, former prosecutor Melvin Welch turned criminal defense attorney um, who is now actually in more private practice working for general counsel. But uh, I think it would be an interesting t- conversation to have to kind of get a, an interview from someone who worked on both sides of the aisle, as I've only been on the defense side, never been on the prosecution side. But welcome to the podcast, Mel. How you doing? Hey, Kirk. Uh, hey, Kirk. You're doing well, and thanks for having me on. Very kind. Very kind work. Yes. Yeah, 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 probably <laughs> very, very, way too kind. I mean, it's been a while since I've ran into you. You know, we office for a few years right next to each other, but... Uh, yeah. Once I moved out of downtown, I, I, I haven't run into you too much. Yeah, I, I too have uh, been sparsely sparsely located there recently, uh, mostly out here at my, uh, the companies I'm working for now. So, uh, but but great, a lot of fun being downtown. Always fun running into you, grabbing you know little Chinese food from the shop down the hall. There, they got the best sesame chicken around anyway. 
So, yeah, I'm hoping that they don't have to permanently close because of this whole uh, coronavirus shutdown stuff. Yeah, I agree entirely. I've uh, I've, I've uh, done what I can to support local businesses out here, and we'll see how things pan out statewide. Yep, I agree. Well, hopefully it'll come up. What? So the the discussion here today, Mel, is you know when I first got to know you years back, you were actually a uh, county attorney, assistant county attorney for Hennepin County. And uh, I remember I was kind of running into you more on uh, drug cases and I think even some firearm cases. Uh, but how how long were you a county attorney? Well, okay, well, uh, actually I started out on the defense side. I was with the uh, State Public Defender's Appellate Office post-conviction unit for about two and a half, uh, two and a half years, I think, almost three years, maybe two and a half, I forget exactly. It's quite some time ago now. And then uh, in 08, I went to the Hennepin County Attorney's Office uh, and I was there until March of 13, and you correctly identified that I primarily prosecuted drug and firearm cases there, um, some violent crimes, mostly ones that were tied up into uh, drug and, and firearm, but not the, uh, not the prevailing charge, more of a, of a secondary charges. Um, and then uh, in 2013, I went to work uh, with uh, your old partner, Avery Appleman, and then uh, after about a year, year and a half, I was there. Uh, went into private practice, and so uh, uh, I had, you know, great pleasure getting to know good practice tips from working with good defense attorneys like yourself and uh, the neighbor that I was uh, uh, officing with and your own uh, sweet mate there. A lot of fun, good tips, and uh, so, uh, yeah, that's my career, I guess. That's about, that's the, the criminal side of the career anyway. Yeah. So uh, people may, now the State Public Defender's Office, actually, you said post-conviction, it's not so much day-to-day uh, -day court sort of operation. It's more of appellate work and things like that. But when you switch to the prosecution side, then you're in court on a, essentially a daily basis. It's kind of yeah. a different practice. Was that a, did that take you by surprise a little bit? Did it take some time to get used to? I think that I had uh, maybe the best division that I went to at the prosecutor's office. You know, at the state PD's office, most of the time you're reviewing um, uh, cases that have already gone through district court for error, right? You're looking for legal error, um, either constitutional, procedural, whatever it may be, sentencing, uh, the substance of the case itself, uh, misapplications of law. And so you spend your whole day digging through case law and uh, splitting those errors um, to make your case, or if you have a good case, not having to split the errors. And so after spending several years of that, that practice and really owning up on Fourth Amendment law, you know, I come into the, the uh, drug and uh, the firearm uh, caseload that I had. And as you know, most of uh, a ton of that, almost the bulk of the litigation of those cases is Fourth Amendment law, right? I mean, that's that's your contested omnibus hearing issues right there almost 80, 90 percent of the time. So uh, it was very fortuitous that I had that experience and it helped me a lot in uh, enabling me to have a, a substantial caseload and to uh, prosecute those cases effectively, and I would like to think justly. Um, obviously, opinions can differ on that, uh, but I, I certainly was uh, very conscientious about the constitutional restrictions. I think some people thought I was a little soft, having been a, a defender prior to being a prosecutor, um, but I, I don't know that my record really supports that. No, I always thought you were pretty, a pretty good, pretty fair, but also tough at the same time prosecutor. Uh, you, you're pretty level-headed, more level-headed than most than a lot of prosecutors I run into. 
Well, that's very kind. Now you're just now you're just buttering me up because uh, I know I know a few choice names that I was uh, called in my time as a prosecutor. Uh, <laughs> none of them were level-headed or reasonable, uh, but that's no. probably my disposition. Well, I'm sure asshole probably came in at some point, but <laughs> that, it didn't come from me. Yes, yes, or male genitalia names. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I bet. That's um, my name anyway. <laughs> so, so you worked in, um, you know, to being a prosecutor, it's something I've never actually, you know, done. I've always done defense work, so I know that side. But I've always wanted to get a little bit more, just the differences of what it's like to actually be a prosecutor and the other stresses that go along with it, because there are sort of you're an employee and you're an employee of a politician who needs to get reelected. I mean, what is that like to have that sort of you know, different, um, different stress. You know, that's a, that's an excellent question and, uh, and a timely one, I think, Kirk as well. Um, well, firstly, I think any time that you are supervising or managing lawyers and you've heard the allegory hurting cats, uh, that is an apt allegory for what you're dealing with or, or ideally uh, you're dealing with uh, a, a fairly educated individual uh, who has definitive and developed worldview and a and particular view on the law. I think that, uh, you know, when you get into a particular area uh, young in your practice, you'll tend to develop uh, biases or prejudices, uh, not necessarily that that's a, a negative connotation of those words, but that's going to inform your perspective on how you perceive a case. So, you know, with that, uh, with that PD work at the appellate level, uh, you know, I'm really in there uh, breaking it down to the minutiae the minutia of the law to see if there's any benefit for my client. So when I switch over to prosecution, you know, there's a, there's, like I said, there's a good basis of knowing what that Fourth Amendment law is. So as you look at a case of first blush, right, when I get a case in, so let's talk about I get a case in as a prosecutor. Uh, case file comes across my desk. All right, what do we got here? Oh, here's officer so-and-so. Oh, all right, nice to see him. Uh, what, what do we got going down here? Oh, first-degree case, drugs. Um, okay, so now I'm going to start looking for the elements of the case. Uh, is there uh, X amount of a controlled substance in the schedule identified? Um, how do they know that it's the, the, the controlled substance? All right, uh, where is it located? Is it on this person's body? Is it in their constructive possession? In other words, is it, is it in an area over which they... Uh, uniquely have uh, control uh, of that product that uh, that I could tie it to them, right? Because we have to prove this case um, on a number of different levels. Uh, first on reasonable suspicion, second on probable cause, and finally on whether or not there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, so, you know, you're looking for those elements. Are they met? Um, and then, then you start digging into a little bit. Okay, how did this go down? Uh, how did this case come to be? Is this an investigation? Is it a warrant? Uh, was there a warrant for a search obtained? Was this, a, was this a, a search incident to arrest? Was there a basis to arrest them? Um, uh, was this a, an expansion of a, of a stop and investigate? Uh, targets pulled over for speeding, uh, and the cop says, I, you know, hey, I want to search your trunk for, you know, can I take a look in your trunk? Okay, why do you want to go in the trunk? Is there a reason for him to make that request and to assert his authority further? Um, so you start looking at the legal issues because, as you know, Kirk, from the defense perspective, you're sure as the Dickens going to raise those issues in uh, zealously advocating for your client. That's your job, right? That's our that's our minimum standard of competency. Absolutely. You know, to understand these issues and pursue them. So 
so I get this case, I review it for the facts, I review it for the law, and there are generally two rules of thumb that uh, uh, that my uh, old mentor, Brian Anderson, you know Brian, yep. uh, a, a great, reasonable prosecutor, uh, really good attorney, um, excellent mentor. Just uh, think the world of him. I was really blessed to have him as my, my uh, mentor. Um, all right, so, you know, is, is this going to pass muster constitutionally, number one? Number two, uh, do you have a reasonable case to argue to a jury? Could I, could I reasonably come to the position that uh, there is uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt here? Uh, and so you exercise those two principles in reviewing that case, and it's uh, uh, just as you know, a rule of thumb, a, a, a way to look at it from the laity. And if you're able to do it, all right, then, you know, you have a duty, right? I've sworn... Uh, an oath on the Constitution to uphold the laws of the state of Minnesota and the federal government and uh, the United States Constitution, and uh, and then I it is my job to pursue these charges. Uh, 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 and this is, I guess, this is where you get into philosophical differences: to conviction or to just resolution, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I perceive that uh, a conviction when there's a when the, the law has been broken as a prosecutor when I was there, a conviction was that just conclusion if the law was broken. That doesn't mean that the guy is going to get hammered or the gal is going to get the book thrown at her. Um, it means that first there is the acknowledgement uh, of the guilt. There is that finding of guilt to support any coercive conduct of the state and penalty thereafter. Um, so, you know, there were really extraordinary circumstances, and I think the statutory law would would support my, my position on that, pursuing it to conviction, because there's statutory law that does identify that there are uh, extraordinary times where potentially a conviction is not the final just resolution, but they are narrow. They are uh, narrowly defined and, and circumspect and few and, and circumstance. So uh, that, that's kind of how I would approach a case. Then, you know, you, you charge out the case, um, get down there into the courtroom, 1156, 1159, wherever you're at, and then I'm uh, spending time with Kirk Anderson or Artie Martinez, Scott Lewis, you know, a bunch of fun guys that come in there and know their know their law, know their cases, have lots of experience, and now they're going to, you know, I get to test my mettle against these intelligent individuals uh, protecting this, you know, this, uh, this uh, accused defendant uh, from the power of the state. So... Uh, you know that, and then then we have all of our fun thereafter, right? Usually starts with you guys asking me for a dismissal and an apology, and then we usually yep. come to some place that's uh, reasonable, <laughs> somewhere reasonable. Yeah. You know, one thing I've always kind of wondered is you've got this. You know, you talk about where you see all these Fourth Amendment issues, constitutional issues, and that generally is what criminal law is, is it's constitutional law. But from a prosecutor's standpoint, you know, I see a case, I'll go, oh, this, there's no way that this search was good. This is BS. You know, this case isn't going to fly. When prosecutors get those kind of cases and they see that, it seems as if how, how can you actually be prosecuted? How can you sign off on this complaint? Um, did you ever come across situations where, like, they're like, well, yeah, it looks like this guy, you know, he had a certain amount of drugs on him or whatever. He could certainly support the charge. But this is a it was a BS search. It was a BS arrest or something like that where I'm just I'm not even going to bother with it. I'm not going to put it. Yeah charges guy. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that because that brought, you brought me full circle back to what you had initially asked. So thanks for redirecting me on that. 
Um, all right. Well, within the within the office itself, right, you have your uh, your charging decision, and in the event that you don't make a charging decision, you can either defer the case. Hey, I, I need additional information uh, on this particular area. Uh, I, I don't, you know, this seems to be lacking, uh, or uh, you know, I want to. Uh, I'm not certain on the uh, on this factual uh, predicate whether whether there's anything there uh, or are there additional reports. Or you can defer that. Uh, or you can decline it. And uh, so <clears throat> coming back to the, the inquiry, you know, what do you do when you're working for an elected official? So this is where an area that you could potentially experience pressure uh, from from above. Um, I, I started under, uh, like I said, I was mentored by Brian Anderson, uh, uh, judge, uh, uh, retired judge Jane Ranham was our division uh, head at that time and really had a, a high level of, uh, of trust in her uh, managed uh, attorneys. And so, uh, I, you know, there were cases that I would get in, like you identify here, Kirk, that are, are no good. And I would use those decline opportunities, and hopefully I would get that, you know, make the right call on this. And I didn't always make the right call. I mean, there's a couple cases I could point out. I just can't think of the defendant's name right now, uh, where I was overturned on appeal, right? Uh, I had the conviction. Uh, went to trial, got a conviction by a jury. Uh, court went back, and said, "No, nah, this, you know, this uh, on review, this isn't good." So I've been wrong, um, and the court of appeals has told me I'm wrong. And in fact, the court of appeals has told me I'm wrong on no less than, uh, you know, probably 70 percent of the time. But most of that comes from the defense side. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's nothing to be ashamed of, or otherwise. Um, but then, uh, you know, depending on who's your supervisor, you certainly can experience that pressure. And so I, I'm thinking of a case in particular where uh, I, I don't remember the exact uh, facts of it anymore, um, but it was clear to me that there was a problem with the stop. I think that somebody was parked in a parking lot at night, cops roll by, roll up, you know, start doing the shakedown, eventually turns up drugs inside the car. Okay, well, why? Why Why'd they come in this parking lot? Business is closed or otherwise. Okay, well, it's a public parking lot. It's not necessarily a private parking lot. As I recall, it's a public parking lot. Uh, I don't have any information that there's any restriction to not be there after a certain hour. Uh, doesn't look like from the report or from what I envision from the description in the report, there's anything that would really draw attention that needs to be inquired of. You know, there's always suspicion. Um, I, here's the one thing about law enforcement. I mean, generally, as they operate, right, right, they're operating in a context where they are there to investigate and find and ferret out crimes. That's their job. And so, that informs their perspective, right? The whole uh, uh, straw vision, you know, down that straw hole. You know, your whole vision is uh, constrained by these, this context of, of, uh, uh, of your job and your experience. And, uh, and let's face it, a lot of times they tend to have very good instincts and, uh, and end up being right. But did they get to the end in the proper way? And that's what's required. So you know, maybe this car is there and they're cased out a joint or, or – doing some other miscreant acti uh, activity, who knows? And I have this experience of Fourth Amendment law. I can't get past it. And so I decline them. I identify out, you know, in a page and a half, two page, kind of go through the law. You know, it can get kind of uh, burned some. This is the why. Um, and then uh, you turn that in and then uh, get pressure from the sergeant. Hey, you know, what about this? And I'm like, well, you know, this is the reason. I mean, I kind of explained it out the, the document where – each of the steps in error there were and where I can't get past uh, to really get to a constitutional argument. I, at the end of the day, I got to 
take this into court. I got to argue to a judge, hey, Your Honor, based on my interpretation of the law and what is a reasonable interpretation of the law and what the law says, uh, I believe I have a basis to proceed. And I just don't have this here. And so after getting the pressure uh, initially on me, uh, they go up the chain, which is, you know what, that's how things are supposed to be, right? You, you, you go to the source first, and after that, you go up the chain. It's a military mentality. It's how I was trained in the Navy, and I think it's a very effective way of, of dealing with problems or, or addressing grievances. So I'll go up the chain, and then my, my new supervisor is like, okay, well, can you review this? And I go, okay, yeah, review it. Come back. You know, this I, I reviewed it. Looking at this, I, I really don't see anything different. And then things get a little more formalized, a little more pressure imposed. So, well, I, I really need you to go back into it, dig into it. All right. So I'll go back and dig into it. Instead of a two-page decline, I come up with a six-page decline. Because I'm not stupid. Because I understand the law here. And I'm going to break it down for you, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, so that you understand the law. This is an opportunity to learn. We're not here to ferret stuff through. We're here to see justice. At least that's what, that's what Mike, uh, uh, um, uh, why am I blanking all of a sudden? Mike Freeman uh, 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 said, you know, we, we're here to do justice, and, uh, and that was my guiding post. And, uh, and so after, you know, after I do that, I didn't deal with any more guff. Now, it may very well have been a supervisor took and charged it out herself or otherwise. That's not on me. Um, I have certainly seen that occur before, uh, but I didn't, I didn't really experience any of, of that in my, my tenure there anyway. Yeah, sure. So you kind of got in there a little bit. Um just some of the kind of political pressures sometimes that, you know, the sheriffs or the individual police officers might force upon you for declining to charge or maybe not charging it as harshly as you want. And where I see that come into play a lot is when you're dealing with city attorneys, because the city attorneys, um, you know, they're hired by the city and, and frankly, the police have a lot to do with it. Um, whereas the county attorneys are elected by the people and the county attorneys, obviously, they want their endorsements from the local sheriff or the local police or, or whatever organization it is. But ultimately, it's the, the, the taxpayers that are voting for them, whereas the city attorneys are picked by the city council, but they go a lot by what the police say. And I think they face even more pressures because they can just pull that contract and say, hey, you're not going to do what we want you to do, then we're going to go find someone that will. And, yeah. and, and, and maybe you saw that a little bit more when you're on the defense side than prosecutor. Well, there certainly are cases I think you and I have both experienced on the defense side that are more sensitive and requiring of potentially, uh, to put it sweetly, a greater diligence on the side of the prosecutor than others. Um, careless driving is not going to uh, gain as much ire for getting passed over than a, a, as a DWI or a, a domestic assault case is going to get, right? Um, it's, just, it's just not as high stakes, not as detrimental to society. Um, and so that's, that's going to get treated a little bit differently. Uh, but I, I do, you know, here's the thing, Kirk. I mean, how do you measure your success in a local municipality where you're, you know, you're close to the populace? They generally have a very good ear to what is occurring in the near community and and they want they want a crime-free area they want a safe place to live they want their kids biking down the street and uh, they got the neighbor who was on the council living right next door and, hey what the hell are you doing on this da, 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 da. why don't you put a stop sign in over there right so there's there's a uh, uh there's that closeness to the uh the very mores and ties that bind us together 
together. And there's, a, there's an easy way to measure your productivity or your success at that level. Well, this is how many crime reports we got in. This is how many cases we had closed, uh, you know, with guilty convictions. It's a simple measure. And, uh, and, and when you're dealing with a democracy, I think you have to simplify things for people's uh, consumption so that they understand. And, uh, and I think that would, that would go towards it. But you're definitely right. There are, there are um, victims to that scenario. I mean, hey, look at Paul Berchi, right? Great prosecutor. Uh, he could be tough. He was reasonable. He had a good mind for the law. And he was not all that accommodating for this bunk. And he got his contract pulled, right? I mean, mm-hmm. That's essentially what happened there. He's, he's a great guy to have now as a, as a defense attorney. Maybe not as great as you, Kirk. Uh, <laughs> for the sake of this podcast, um, and uh, and but you know, but I, you know, there there are definitely uh, individuals that fall victim to that that scheme. But is there a better one? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I've always found it odd. Sometimes I'll go to a prosecutor and say, "Hey, you know, can we maybe do this?" And they're like, "Oh, well, I'll go check with the, the officer." And I'm like, "Well, why? Yeah. yeah, why do you need to go check with the officer? You're the one sitting here in court talking to the judge." You need to make the call. It's it's your call. I don't you know I don't care what the officer is. What I, the I, officer exactly, said. I have exactly in mind what you're talking about, uh, Eden Prairie. I uh, didn't say that out loud, right? Uh, no. Well, <laughs> I mean it's more than it's more than Eden Prairie. I, I mean I've seen it all over the place. But but even some it's even some police officers like the state patrol. They seem to have their foot on the on the neck of of every prosecutor that they're oh sorry the state patrol case. There's nothing we can do. And I just I, I find that so strange. I'm like well you guys are the prosecutors. You're the attorney. And yeah. you're going to have to be the one to tell the judge why we're going to trial on this case when it should resolve because, well, I can't make a offer because this jurisdiction will get mad about it. Yeah, it's certainly odd because, while well, they may potentially be the client, the state, yep. and the, the particular representative of the state. They're certainly, they, they don't necessarily have a, a vested interest in it monetarily or injury-wise. They're merely executing the duties of that executive position by upholding the laws and the law said this and the end result of this ought to be conviction uh, unless there is some type of circumstances justifying it one way or the other uh, some of those considerations going into the circumstances I think are reasonably financial considerations for the drain or the strain put upon the judicial branch right? if you're a completely unreasonable prosecutor down in uh, wherever it may be in Prairie Dinah, Minnetonka, or on the east side, Maplewood, uh, Oakdale, who cares? Um, The the court has not unlimited resources, and those resources ought to be spent in significant disputes where there cannot come to a a reasonable conclusion. You and I have, uh, as as defense attorneys, I I think in nearly – 100%, 100%, right? There's always a few, as we call them, Broncos, right? There's always a few Broncos. But in nearly 98% of the time, you can you can find that reasonable re- resolution uh, through agreement of your client uh, uh, and agreement of the prosecutor. And that is how the system, I believe, uh, is set up to run, the, the, uh, the pretrial process by which we can negotiate, share the evidence, review the evidence, uh, understand the defendant, understand whether there are extenuating circumstances, and get to a reasonable conclusion. Uh, and that type of relationship between the, because uh, they're not the prosecuting authority, and they have no role beyond being that of a witness. And frankly, 
there ought to be concern uh, regarding bias as a witness when they are the ones who demand a particular resolution. Um, I think that, that that's that, that's a very uh, earnest and significant compromise to their reliability and credibility as a witness. Well, I got to have a conviction. So you'll say anything? <laughs> well, no, I didn't say that. No, but you know, there's a, there's a goal, and obviously they're tailoring their actions in a particular way to meet the goal. Not supposed to do that. You're supposed to observe, see if there's an infraction law, collect the evidence, report that evidence, and let the system take its course. Yep, I agree. I think that should be how it's that's how it's supposed to be. So now switching, so you did move to prosecution, going to the defense side. What I mean, what that must have been a completely different situation where one side you're fighting on this stuff. And now you're fighting for the the individual. You know, you're you've got the state and then the individual. What's that like? Well, at, at home it was a lot of fun because my wife would uh, regularly call out my 180 position uh, on forceful arguments that I may be making in a particular uh, situation that's similar to one that I've just been in as a prosecutor. <laughs> well, well, just last week you're saying the cops are dirty, <laughs> yep. right? Uh, so that was always fun at home, but it certainly does open your mind to consider uh, the different perspective of the position. All right, so you know, as an defense attorney, our first duty is to the client, and that does not mean that it is an exclusive duty because we carry duties to the court as well, right? Um, yep. The duty of candor, uh, the duty to follow the law, the duty not to be party to a crime all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we are there to zealously advocate for our client's benefit. And I always interpret I try to break it down simple. What's the best thing I can do for my client is get this case tossed. That's the best, right? And, yep. uh, and barring my ability to get that case tossed, okay, then what is, uh, what is the next best? Is, uh, uh, is it trial? Uh, is it uh, a negotiated resolution? I don't know. But all these options that I work up for my client, must be presented to the client, must be discussed with the client. Uh, you know, you are their counselor. You are their lifeline in an otherwise awful situation. Uh, let's face it, Kirk, we don't have pleasant jobs. Uh, it is filled with stress, especially as a defense attorney. You're getting yelled at by the court. You're getting yelled at by the prosecutor. You're getting yelled at by your own client. The jury looks at you like you're some jerk uh, in a used suit selling them a, a junker. Uh, there's an inherent distrust of you, uh, and that's, that goes to that uh, intrinsic bias that ought to be guarded against by the jury of, well, if he's here, he did something, and this guy's going to try and get him off. Hey, we got a, a critical position to play in this constitutional structure. Um, so it's not a pleasant job. There's a capability of great stress, and if you're not, if you're not, if you're faint-hearted, it's a hard life. And uh, so you know, when you're, when you're dealing with criminal defense attorneys, you're dealing with people that are, are pretty strong and pretty solid in their position. And so that's why the, that's what our clients are coming to us for. Hey, I got the full weight of the the full weight and fury of the sole monopoly on force in this society, that of the government, and it's coming for my hide. Can you help me? <laughs> yeah, I can help you. It costs a lot of money. 
Well, I'll do, I'll do what I can. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I don't mean to be not trying to be callous, but there's a lot of time, effort, and uh, and stress that's put in the job, and and uh, and it is expensive to hire private counsel, even if you are reasonably priced. It's still an expensive endeavor. So now these people, with the state that's coming after their ass, and the attorney that's coming after their money. Um, you know, they they need a straight shot. They need to know what's going on. They need to make informed decisions, and uh, and that's what our job is, right? So to work up every hair, to work up every argument, to let them know, sure, I can make this argument, but mate, this one's not going to get us very far, and in fact, it can have a detrimental effect on our other arguments. You know, it's just to give them the tactics, give them the strategies, let them understand. Uh, I, I should say strategies. The tactics are ours. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that being, um, obviously, and I know that you are uh, open and communicative and supportive and available for your clients, um, you know, you'll get, you'll get the right thing done. So, so, uh, so that's kind of uh, the, the first duty, right? Uh, different, oh, okay, uh, so Mel, so, so Mel um, I was going to ask you um, just kind of, a, I know you're a very smart man, very well read in the, in the news. I don't need specifics of the case, but kind of things that could come into from defense side or even prosecution side, just cases in general. There was this case in Georgia about this, yeah. this, this guy that was just, that was uh, killed by a father and son. They're white, obviously, yeah. and it had been dragging out there for a few months and it actually just got charged. Say kind of a lot of uh, public pressure is seen as, is why the charge came. But it also sounds like one of the individuals was a former police officer and this was kind of a small town. So, um, I know you might not know the specifics of it, but, you know, in a case like that, that's that sensitive, from a prosecutor's standpoint, what are the steps that, that, that they need to take to make sure that they do the right thing, whether it be by a charging or not charging? You know, kind of what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I, I have uh, read a number of articles. I saw that video. Did you see that video? I did. Oh, it is. Uh, it's gut wrenching, isn't it? It, it, it just it just flipped my stomach. I don't know that I've ever had that visceral over. I've had. I guess when I've seen life that's there and then gone, it, it is such a visceral response. It is so. It was very hard to see. Um, and that is, you know, that's an interesting case, Kirk, because right, this uh, this retired officer, the father, had just retired recently from, uh, from uh, I guess, from his role in retirement, because I guess he had been a police officer, and then he was retired to be an investigator for the DA's office or some, some effect, and, okay. then, and then he had recently retired from that to where he was at now. And, uh, and they had this video there, right? And so I was reading a little bit about that because there's, there's some stuff out there. I can't remember. I think it had to do with the, the DA's uh, analysis on it. And this is, this is the uh, – how do you – I don't want to be overly offensive or otherwise. How, how would I say it? Right, Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus in the deserts. Right, um, if you have, you know if you're the son of God, you know give yourself food, water. You know, and Christ said, you know, don't tempt me, Satan, away with you. Um, you know, so even even evil can quote the the words of the Almighty uh, for their own purposes. And yet, you're I'm looking at this breakdown in an incredibly technical manner to a I don't want to say attempt, but it's certainly was informed, it seemed to be informed by favoritism or the benefit of the doubt um, given to this father-son combination. Because it, it's breaking down to, you know, okay, he goes around the truck 
and then uh, and then he engaged with this uh, the son that had the, the rifle. Right? Kind of breaking it down. Well, he so he he made the first move here. He made the first move there, and it, it's much broader than that. I mean, this uh, there's no as, as I understand it, there was no observed criminal conduct that has happened. Uh, young fellas running down the road and two vehicles with fellas and, and as he was just jogging if I if I recall so, correctly right like, yeah yeah jogging so, down the road and, and obviously so, yeah this see. is in Georgia so every, every you know every state's laws are different when it comes to self-defense and the south obviously are quite a bit different than we have up here but it had it, this video not come out you, you kind of wonder if this would have ever been charged because it could have very well been Oh, we were defending ourselves. This guy made a, an action towards us, and so we had to protect ourselves, or, or you know, whatever claims that they would have made. Yeah. But until you actually see the video, that's what changes things. But then the prosecutors, I can only assume, would have had this video long ago, and you wonder what took them so long to charge it. Well, they weren't going to charge it, right? They were going to give it to the grand jury, so they were going to absolve themselves of the charging decision and give it to the grand jury to. To consider, and ostensibly they would probably have provided that video to them. Um, but I think the Georgia uh, Bureau of, uh, essentially Georgia's equivalent of Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, right? The, the statewide investigatory body. I mean, they could see right away. Look, look, the guy was whether or not they were attempting to seize him without any justification preceding it, which apparently there was none, which would be a false imprisonment or potentially even an attempted kidnapping. Uh, they're also confronting him with firearms, which, as you know, assault two, a menacing somebody with a firearm is an assault with a deadly weapon is a felony, and this guy died in the course of it. So, I mean, they found felony murder pretty pretty fairly quickly, and uh, I think reasonably so. Um, so, there, you know, I, I think that it cannot be understated that bias, intrinsic bias, that inherent bias, uh, uh, and I think, what, what do we call it? We call it cognitive bias, don't we? Um, when there's a particular expected or expected outcome yep. or a, a particular position and that facts and inferences are drawn consistent with that cognitive bias. I think that this is a, a, a significant, um, I think this is a good example of, of that occurrence. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that and that's yeah, it's a tragic story, and that one's obviously not not going to go go away anytime soon. I don't think. But, but let's talk about this on another. Let's talk about this in a different phrase because I do tend to give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt. I I don't know where it comes from. I think that it comes from a lot of different places, right? But the least of which is law enforcement needs to have integrity, not just that they want to have integrity for them to operate effectively efficiently within our society they need to have that integrity in there and so generally they are afforded that that presumption of integrity they're afforded uh, that belief that they are acting in a reasonable manner and uh, and we we have you and I have been through many cases and I, I know you have because I've read the different appeal decisions that come out justifying your interpretation and your uh, application of the facts to the law so i know that you've seen them i know that i have where uh um uh, hold on for a second while i get my bearings again oh where that that integrity is not occurring that the 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 uh the accuser uh is should not be afforded that presumption and in fact the law does not afford them that presumption it is the prosecution's it is the state's burden 
uh, by a preponderance of the evidence and by the burden of persuasion to prove that they have not violated the constitutional right, right? Right? Yep. We're talking about the uh, the suppression, the evidentiary hearings, the constitutional issues. The state has to show that they're following the law, not the defense has to prove that they didn't follow it. It's always the state's burden. And so there should be an a, a approach to these cases with requiring that burden to be shown by the state. And that's not always the case. And we have seen and we are seeing examples where where there has been abuses by this, these institutions that, that need that integrity, that uh, th these abuses uh, have incredible consequences and destructive consequences on the social fabric of the nation. Um, and boy, oh boy, I mean, it cannot be underscored, I don't think, when, that we, we have to hold authorities to account. We have to hold them responsible. We, we cannot just give them the benefit of the doubt, depending on our political persuasion, but have to, we have to look at a critical eye and inherent, an inherent skepticism. And, uh, and we, we, we do that regularly as criminal defense attorneys. I mean, that's how we have to approach the case. And, and the difficulty becomes is ha having that understood by those who have the requirement of, of being the trier as a judge, right? The jury. Uh, the, ju the judge of the facts, the jury, getting the jury to understand, no, it's not the defense that has to prove anything. It's a state that has to prove, prove everything and not just prove it, but, but prove it by a standard higher than any other standard, beyond a reasonable doubt, um, that there's no reasonable uh, uh, doubt. Uh, that, in other words, whether or not there's even, if there's any type of reasonable doubt, hey, maybe this other guy who was standing next to this, accused shooter who also has a gun, maybe he is the one who shot. You know, he wasn't checked out or otherwise. This is, this is what the Constitution requires, but human experience is, is, is different from that. And so it's a, difficult, it's a difficult concept, I think, to internalize and apply. It, it, it is difficult and it's hard, and I think people try to, to do it as much as they can, but it's just not always possible because people are human beings and they do make mistakes and um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously our job to make sure or to try as hard as possible to make, to hold police officers accountable, to hold prosecutors accountable, um, in order to protect our rights, because the amount of power that police officers have over us is, is amazing. Yeah. Most people, you really don't know how much power they have. Until and you're in it. Yeah, until you're in it. I mean, it, I, I don't have a statistic. I'm going to say 95% of cops are good cops and do their job honestly and with integrity. But you get one or two bad apples in there, and it can it can ruin the whole system. It ruins it for everybody. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's true with prosecutors. It's true with judges. It's, probably, it's true with defense attorneys. You know, you get some defense attorney that rips a client off and doesn't do anything. Well, it gives us all a bad name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You struck on. I mean, uh, we we're we're told from youth, hey, your reputation is important. We're told honesty is important, integrity is important, and until you have experience, and it's so hard to know in your youth and your lacking of experience the truth of the words because it's it's insubstantial, it's ethereal, it's ephemeral, it's a concept, it's a it's a a vision that until you're older and you see that these visions and these ethereal concepts have become solidified in character traits of the human, that they're, they're not just incredibly important, they're 
critical and they are uh, the basis upon which the world is perceived by an individual. They are their absolutes. Um, and it's hard to know that when you're young. It's hard to know, hey, kid, keep your, you know, keep your nose clean. Stay on the straight and narrow. Don't go, you know, don't go doing something stupid that could affect you down the line. Don't hang out with this person or that person because they're a bad influence. You know, well, I'm just trying to have fun. Nah, I'm not, nah, not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm, I've been around for 16 years. You got your head firm up your ass until you're 35 years old on average. Plato struck on that back in the Republic 2,000 some odd years ago, and until you know, and to this day, it remains the truth. Um, but but it's, a, it's a hard one to understand until you have that experience, and uh, and God hope that you do live the uh, examined life so that you realize this and can uh, be a contributing member to society because that's what we need. That's what everyone needs. I agree. Well, hey, Mel, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Hopefully uh, you can come back again sometime, but you gave us good insight, and it was good talking to you, good catching up with you. Always a pleasure, Kirk. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Stay safe out there. You too, pal. Out. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Right to Counsel podcast. If you ever need any legal advice or have questions for me, you can contact me at 952-582-2904, or you can visit my website, www.kirkandersonlaw.com. Once again, I would like to thank Mel Welch for joining the podcast today. I might have to invite him back in the future. Until next time, this is your host, Kirk Anderson, signing off. Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, everyone.